Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Chaldean Priest Show. I'm your host, Father Daniel, Chaldean Catholic Priest, and today we'll be talking about the people who crucified Christ as well as those who were skeptic of his resurrection. Why don't we get started? I hope you're all doing well and staying healthy. I myself took the first dose of my Moderna vaccine, and it went all right. I mean, people were saying that it's not going to be painful. I guess it wasn't when I first got the shot, but uh, my arm just was hurting for like two days, so no one mentioned that to me, but it's okay. Uh, I guess I'm supposed to be taking my second dose in 14 days or something like that, but I'm not sure if I have 5G yet or I'm going to grow another head or something. I'm not sure, but so far so good. And yeah, I hope you all are healthy and I guess things are getting better with uh, the coronavirus considering that the vaccine's out. Although I've seen some states like Michigan reigniting with very high cases. So, yeah, I hope everything goes well for everyone around the world. But enough with that. Let's get to the main topic of today's episode. And I'll be starting off this episode, as I usually do, with a excerpt of the Chaldean Liturgy. This is a basilica hymn that's typically read on the third... Sunday of the Resurrection. So I'm just going to read all of it. It's fairly short, so I'll get to my commentary right after. So it begins like this. After your glorious resurrection, an evil and deceitful people made centurions stand to guard your tomb. Woe to that unbelieving people. If they killed and buried, why were they standing guard? And if they were terrified of you, how did they dare crucify you? Indeed, your resurrection on the third day has shamed your crucifiers and gladdened your church. Glory to you. End quote. I think one of the main pieces of evidence that we see here in this Basilica hymn is ignorance in the human person. Because the author of this Basilica hymn is showing how these guards, these centurions, were contradicting themselves and the way they went about with Jesus's crucifixion, his burial, and the way they treated his resurrection. Because the author has a good point, right? If you know you killed this man and you, you know, shouldn't be afraid of anything, why would you have guards standing there before his tomb? And of course, in uh, early Jewish tradition, the way they would uh, go about burying someone that was high profile, they would guard the tomb just so someone doesn't break in and uh, take any valuables that were left in there. But they obviously know there was nothing other than the shroud that Christ was wrapped in and his body that was there. But they still did that. And then another thing that we see in this Basilica hymn is the ignorance of not knowing who Jesus truly was. And, of course, ended up crucifying him. And I think one of the things that could relate the most to this Basilica hymn is 
a part of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 20, 13, to be specific. And it says this, While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. You can really see how ignorant everyone was that crucified Christ during his time because they really did not even care to understand who Christ was. And I think that was the main cause of their demise, is not even willing to understand who he is. They were completely ignorant of who Christ was. And now we see in this Basilica hymn and also from this part of the Gospel of Matthew that I'm not sure if there was this form of regret, but they it's like someone that lies, right? When someone lies, they have to work much harder to cover up that lie so it, it doesn't get uh, unveiled, right? The truth doesn't get unveiled. And what people tend to do when they lie is they, they just start chasing their own tail. And at some point, you can only lie so much until you can't cover yourself anymore. And we see this here to where they're going to the extent of bribing these people to say that the disciples stole his body. Now, what's happening here? And what can we learn from this Basilica hymn specifically that shows us how ignorant these people were about Christ is actually being knowledgeable about who Christ was? Because the historical Jesus really shows us and proves to us the very mission of Christ, and that is the salvation of all of humanity. And Jesus, throughout his entire ministry, this is what he was attempting to get past these people, is for them to understand who he was. And if you weren't paying attention to Christ specifically, his parables, and I'm going to go into that uh a little deeply because I think understanding his parables will allow us to understand who Christ was even more and why he said the things that he did. Because when Jesus was speaking in parables, he wasn't just using specific examples or stories to help people understand things in a much easier way. I know sometimes when we're learning a certain science or, uh, you know, whatever education it may be, sometimes it could be helpful when the professor or instructor uses examples and stories to help their students understand. But Jesus wasn't doing that with his parables. When Jesus was speaking in parables, he was revealing to them these stories that act, these stories that unless you truly understand what Jesus was saying, they wouldn't be able to act interiorly and exteriorly for the ears of the listeners. And that's why the Pharisees, they opposed Jesus so much. They even said he had a demon inside of him. And one of the reasons why is because 
the Pharisees were ignorant about the historical Jesus. And it's interesting, you even see this evidence in the gospel where it's not until the Pharisees accuse Jesus of being possessed by a demon, where Jesus begins to speak in parables. Because parables do three things. They reveal, they conceal, and they judge. And I'm not going to be talking about any specific parables in this episode today, because I think each parable that Jesus does say it requires its own episode. And if you guys are actually interested in uh, hearing an episode on certain parables of Jesus, just reach out to me and I would be more than happy to uh, put something together for you. But in any case, so these are the basically three actions that the parables do. So first, what do the parables reveal? I think one of the main things that the parables reveal is something about Jesus and his kingdom. Because when Jesus is speaking in parables, right, what, what, how, what does he uh, say to his apostles when he commissions them? Preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what does that translate to? Literally in the Greek, it, it translates to God is near. Jesus is always orienting our minds towards this eschatological reality, this reality that shows us the end of times and what our uh, final end should be in our lives. And the philosophical approach to this is, of course, contemplation of God. That is every human being's final end or should be final, uh, or final end. And the way we contemplate God, of course, ultimately, is becoming a saint. And that is what Jesus is pointing his listeners to when he's speaking in parables. It's always about his kingdom. It is always about what is to come. Because, of course, the reality is things of this world will come to pass. And this eschatological evidence, really going back to the Chaldean liturgy, we especially see this in the epiclesis of the anaphora of Adain Mari, where it shows this eschatological effect. The celebrant of the Chaldean liturgy, during the time of the Epiclesis, he says, Nethemar. And you probably have heard it said in a different way if you've studied uh, any theology. Some people say, Maranatha, which means, Lord, come. And this exclamation by the celebrant of the Mass is begging on the on the behalf of people for the Lord to come. It, it's showing us this different understanding of the liturgy that's, I think, in my opinion, it's much more fulfilling, right? We even see this simply in the Lord's Prayer, right? Thy kingdom come. What are we saying when we say thy kingdom come? We are looking forward to his second coming, and to living at our final end. So that's basically what the parables are revealing. But with that being said, Jesus also conceals something in his parables. Now, I guess this could seem like, oh, you know, why is Jesus hiding things from us? He shouldn't hide anything. He should reveal everything. But it's not really in that sense, because 
What I mean by conceal is only people that understand the kingdom of God and are not ignorant to who Christ is will understand these parables. Because if you're on the outside of these parables and you're on the outside and being ignorant of who Christ is, then of course you won't understand these parables. And like I said in the beginning, these stories wouldn't be able to act in your lives because you're sort of on the outside just looking at it from a very distant view. And that's why we see this, especially when Jesus, he uh, makes it known that he who has ears, let him hear and eyes to see so that he can see these parables. And I think this is one of the reasons, it's not the entire reason, but one of the reasons why Jesus, he, he heals the blind and the mute. And through that, he's showing how these parables are being actualized. And then in Matthew 13, we see how Jesus speaks in parables. And in Matthew 13, he speaks in parables. And uh, Jesus explains why he even speaks in parables. And Matthew geniusly gives allusions to the Old Testament and direct quotations from Isaiah 6. And what's in Isaiah 6? Isaiah 6 is the very calling of Isaiah. And in the midst of Isaiah's calling uh, for him to be a prophet, he's being purified by a coal that touches his lips, which is, there's also a Eucharistic image there when the angels are bringing something from the altar of the Lord. And then after this calling, Isaiah asks God, uh, I think this is in verse 19, how long, O Lord? And then Isaiah has this intimate relationship with God. This vision of the Lord is coming out of his prayer life. And we do not want to have a God that wants us to be blind and wants us to be deaf, spiritually or physically speaking. And I think this is primarily why Isaiah doesn't ask why this is happening to him, but for how long. Because Isaiah, in this sense, he has ears to hear and eyes to see. And how does God respond to Isaiah? He responds by saying his ministry will not be complete until everything is laid to waste. And the people will only believe your work until your life is over. And this is sort of ironic, right? Because what I read earlier from the Gospel of Matthew, it was only after Jesus died and resurrected where they started bribing the guards, to make up a story about his resurrection. It was only then. And us, we, you know, we're here now 2,000 years ago, living wherever we live, whether it's San Diego, Michigan, wherever. You know, we have the duty to maintain, to keep, and to understand the very purpose of Christ. And obviously the way to do that is, and I'm just giving you guys one uh, variable of Jesus's life, which is his parables. And you could see how important even these parables are to understanding Jesus's mission here on earth. And being ignorant of things won't get us anywhere aside from 
confusion and a life that has no fulfillment. And the third aspect of parables is judging. So the parables also judge. And what I mean by this is we are meant to find ourselves in that parable. And that's the way Christ uh, designed it to be. So the Catechism of the Catholic Church says that parables are mirrors. When we're reading these parables, or if you're listening to it uh, at Mass, if it's part of that gospel reading for that Sunday, or if you're reading it during prayer time, whatever it may be, when you're reading parables, just see it as a mirror. Where are you in that parable? Which side are you on in that parable? And that allows us to ask questions about ourselves and how we're living our own lives. So to summarize all of this, remember, it's our duty to gain knowledge in what we believe in and to not be ignorant of the things that have already been revealed to us. Christ has been revealed to us already. The fathers and tradition both orally and written, has been passed down to us till this day. Apostolic succession is still being passed down till this very moment. Everything is in front of our eyes, and all of the resources we need are in front of us. So remember, we don't have time to become ignorant, because remember that first thing that a parable does, it reveals. It reveals things about Jesus' kingdom. It's all about the end, the end goal. And we need to order everything we do towards our end, which is to become a saint. And now, to the lion's den. Is it a sin to receive the Eucharist by hand rather than by mouth? We know now since Corona started, a lot of people have been noticing that many churches have been requiring to receive the Eucharist by hand and not by mouth. And I've heard from a lot of people, some think uh, that, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. Some other people are on the opposite aisle and think that it's a sin to do that and they're basically not worthy to receive by hand or that their hand is dirty and they don't want to place something so sacred onto their, their dirty hands. And some deem it sinful. And I just want to address this really quick. So just to get something straight, a sin means that we are going against our human nature, right? And receiving the Eucharist by hand is not a person going against their human nature. Receiving the Eucharist by hand is not sinful and it is not something to be frowned upon because if we want to argue about cleanliness, who knows how clean our, our mouths are in the first place? And obviously, there's also a proper form to receive by hand. You even see this through uh, the Chaldean Fathers. They teach that uh, the right hand goes over the left hand to sort of make a symbol of the cross, and the communion is placed on the hand and the person bows down to receive it by mouth, doesn't pick it up with the other hand. And we even see this uh, in other places in the Chaldean liturgy. For example, the Thanksgiving hymn uh, composed by 
Mariazdin, he begins by saying, Strengthen, O Lord, the hands that extend, and receive the host that forgives their sins. So receiving by hand was a very ancient way of receiving communion. And for those who are who would rather not receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, which gives us life, because of their opinion on whether it's correct or incorrect to receive by hand, I think that says more about who we are than anything. Because the Eucharist is the very body and blood of Christ no matter what. And it is still a reverent way to receive the Eucharist, whether it's by hand or by mouth. And if anyone else wants to have a lengthier discussion about this, I'll be more than happy to speak with you about this. Just ask me on social media. God bless you all. This is my episode for today. And as always, see you next time.